Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. All right, welcome back into the podcast. And, you know, I haven't fired up one of these in a while. It's been a, a good long minute since I've done a mailbag. And that's what we're doing today. Got some good questions. Got some fun questions uh, via Twitter and email. Reminder, follow me on Twitter, at Nick Baugh. And you can email me anytime you want anything that's on your mind. Nick at NickBaugh.com is the email. Gosh, we got maybe like 10, 12 14 questions or so to hammer through. Uh, so let's do this thing. Let's start on Twitter, and I'm going to start with more of a lighthearted one. And, and I suppose because this is from my cousin Scott, if someone has Ba on their last name, I'm going to read your question first. So this is my cousin Scott. Uh, his question, he says, Dude at the jukebox is blasting five Creed songs in a row. The place needs to get bumping. You open the app to hit play next. What song are you playing today? What song are you playing if it was the early 2000s? What song are you playing if it was the early 90s? Okay. Wow. Tough question. First of all, five – somebody played five straight Creed songs? I mean, that's like grounds for, like, getting thrown out of the bar. Is it not? Like, I'm sorry to all the Creed fans out there, but someone someone has the audacity to play five straight Creed songs? I mean, that's like you're, – you're sabotaging the bar right there. It's ridiculous. I mean – if that person, I would go to the owner and say, either we're throwing out the guy that threw out, put on all these Creed songs, or I'm closing my tab and I'm out of here. I'm taking my business elsewhere. Give me a break here. But uh, okay, so tough question. And you know, when it comes to music selection at you know at a party like this at a bar, or whatever, you know, it's always tough where you can either be super selfish and and play the songs that get you hyped, or you got to think mass appeal. And over the years in these spots, like I think if you if you think mass appeal and in particular, think about the girls at the party. Like if the girls are hyped, everybody's going to be hyped. The girls are having fun. Everybody's going to be having fun. So that's where you think about Destiny's Child, Beyonce, those kinds of things. Like you play that, girl's going to get crunk. They get crunk. Whole place gets crunk. I think it's a mathematical, scientific fact, right? But to the specifics of the questions. Okay, what song am I playing today? Oh, my God. I mean, I'm so bad with new songs today. I will say this. One of the greatest things that's happened over the last couple of months, really like month for sure, is what has really helped me with new music is Kids Bop. Kids Bop has been a game changer for me and my knowledge level of pop music today. I've been so bad with with anything new and pop for a while. I suppose that's what happens when you become a dad, but then like once your kids get to where they want to play kids bop, then you kind of get back into it. Side note, kids bop is such a fascinating uh it's such a fascinating thing. I would have loved to have been the person in the meeting room that pitched kids bop to someone. Like, all right, here, hear me out. We are going to have kids, like little kids, like 10, 11 years old. They're gonna sing and cover just the the popular songs of today, and it's going to be called Kids Bop. You'd be like, huh? Okay, so instead of Bruno Mars singing, singing 24 Karat Magic, we're going to get little Billy, who's 10, to sing 24 Karat Magic. Like, And, the, you know, you just, 
it's a weird thing to pitch to the artists themselves. I mean, I imagine they're getting cut some sort of check for that. And then, like, the it's just a weird concept. But I like it. And it's weird also, conceptually, too, how, like, apparently they must have done studies that, like, a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, an eight-year-old, they're only going to like a song if it's sung by a six or a seven or an eight-year-old or something like that. Like, that's a weird thing, too. But listening to Kids Bop with my daughter has really helped me out. So to answer the question, the new songs that would get the place crunk, um, well, they're, to me, they're, the first one, I'm not going to front. I'm not going to lie to you guys. There's a song called there's a, uh, there's a song called Levitating by Dua Lipa and DaBaby. That, that, that song gets the place bumping a little bit. I'm not going to lie. I get a little crunk when that one comes on. Um, the, the other song, I think it's Ty Verdes, T-A-I. Is it Ty Verdes? I don't know. I feel so old right now. Who is it? Tupac? Two, who is it? <laughs> Ty Verdes? He, he's got a couple tracks that'll get the place rolling. There's this, you've heard the song A-OK. It's a feel-good song. You don't like that song? You don't like being A-OK? That'd be my rebuttal to you. Oh, you don't like being A-OK? Get out of the bar. Go sit with the Creed guy out on the curb, dog. We've got an Uber for your ass. And then there's another song called Sheesh by Ty Verdes. That's pretty good as well. So I'm going to go with those three now. Levitating, A-OK, and Sheesh. Get the place a little crunk. Early 2000s. Man, okay, I'm going to go Mass Appeal here. I mean, you could go Destiny's Child, anything Beyonce. Like, you go that, place going to get rocking. Maybe some 50 Cent in the club. That's not one of my personal favorite 50 songs, but, man, that, that song was huge in 2003. And then early 2000s, man, dog, now, you, now you're speaking my language here. Um, well, I'm going to go late 2000s. For, uh, first of all, I gotta, we got to juvenile back that ass up for sure. Uh, any Dre and Snoop, just pick, pick a track. Then uh, Mark Morrison, Return of the Mac, always get your boy a little crunk. So there you go. There's some some in-depth breakdowns of what songs to play to get the whole place ready to rock at a bar. Uh, next question. So this is from GBR Inc. says, Nick, what's your favorite piece of memorabilia, either as an athlete or a fan? Man, I'm not a huge memorabilia guy. I guess I say that as I'm in my podcast studio and I got a, I've invested in a bunch of posters. I got a Dream Team poster. I got a uh, I got a Kobe Bryant painting that I love. My mother in law uh, bought it for me. Got a Tiger Woods photo that's that I love. Uh, but you know, for me, like per, like from as an athlete, I I know inside my parents' basement, there's a ton of stuff: recruiting letters, old games, different stuff that I'm sure if I went through, I'd be like, "Hey, look at that! I like that." Probably a bunch of stuff I've forgotten about. I mean, the only things I can really think of that jump out at me are like my. My Creighton, Kansas, and Lincoln Southeast basketball jerseys. I have all three of those. Those probably would, would mean a little something to me. Got to have proof that I actually played at Kansas. Like, oh, see, it's got Ba on it. See, there it is. <laughs> proof that I was actually out there. Uh, and then the other obvious one would be the photo of – there's a photo of me and Michael Jordan when I was uh, 12 years old, I think 12 or 13 years old. I was at Michael Jordan basketball camp, and I made the camp all-star team. And the all-star team, we were all set to take like a team photo and we're waiting. And then I'm in this room. I've told this story before, but I'll tell it again. I'm, st- I'm standing on the side. We're all lined up. Like think of how, you know, people like on one knee, on one row in the back row, everybody's standing up. I'm on the back row left and we're all waiting to get a photo and we're just kind of waiting around. And then all of a sudden, boom, this door opens and in walks Michael Jordan. Now keep in mind, this is... This would have been 96. So, like, we're talking dude, if I'm not mistaken, dude had just, they had just gone 72 and 10, and he had just won, he had, he had just won his first title coming back from baseball. 
And Jordan is like, I mean, Jordan's my all-time just dude walks in and it's like time stopped. He's walking towards me and I'm, I am literally hyperventilating. He stands next to me for the photo. And he, he slaps me on my butt and says, how you doing? And I said nothing. I froze. Like, you know, you see those things in movies where someone meets someone famous or whatever, and they're like, ah, ah, ah. Like, I could not, I don't even think I could utter a noise when he came over. Came over, slapped me about how you doing? I'm like, ah, ah. Then cheese, snapped the picture, and he walked off. And so we got that photo, and I cropped it out to where it looks like it's just me and MJ. So, yeah, that'd be probably the most, that, that'd be one that, that means a lot to me, me and Michael Jordan. There you go. Uh, just Fletch on Twitter says, Nick, what does NIL look like in football and basketball in five years and 10 years? Well, I mean, to answer your question, first of all, I sure hope there's, there's five years, 10 years. I mean, hopefully sooner than that, there's, you know, a semblance of parameters and rules around this thing. I know people have gotten tired. The, you know, it's the wild, wild west out there, but it really is. Like there, there are no guidelines, no parameters, no, no nothing. You can just, it is do whatever you want. Got to get, got to get your hands around it a little bit. So I hope there's some parameters and rules and guidelines around this thing. Now I, I will say I'm not one of those guys. I'm not Jay Billis and all that to where I, I have no clue what things can look like specifically from a standpoint of legality, right? Like I can't speak to any of that. Um, but I do, I, I do wonder if at some point you might see these athletes just getting paid by the university. Because that's the, I guess that's one of the things that there's a lot of funny things, unintentionally funny things uh, about the NIL stuff. But like one of the funny things uh, about NIL right now is, you know, it's in the rules. The athletic departments and these coaches, they can't have anything to do with these deals. And we all know on some level, they 100% have something to do with these deals. Right now, I'm not saying Scott Frost is in these these meeting rooms actually talking probably hard dollars and cents. Right, you can't be doing that. But like the idea, the idea that Scott Frost has no idea what Casey Thompson is getting for his NIL deal, or what Adrian Martinez, or even what this O'Shawn Mathis, this big time pass rusher uh, transfer that Nebraska's on. There's been talks of like four, five hundred thousand dollar potential NIL deal on the line. You tell me, Scott Frost says no. I had no idea. I don't know. Oh, come on. Now, I'm not saying Scott Frost is the one that's in the, you know, in the trenches making that deal, but these guys, the, I guess what I'm saying, the idea that they don't have some presence in all of this is laughable. So I guess what I'm saying is I could see at some point that there's a chance that things gravitate towards these universities just paying the players. And I think in that world, things are a lot more controlled as well. Now, again, the legality hoops and, and crossing the T's and dotting the I's of all that, I'm not sure, but I could see it go that direction. I will say this. I was talking to a high school coach the other day, and he said something to me that kind of – we were talking about NIL, and he kind of blew me away. He said, hey, man, you think college athletics is a headache with NIL? Just wait till it hits high school athletics. And I was like, well, what? Time out. Huh? And this coach is like, yeah. And this coach was almost 100% certain – that there would be, there are going to be NIL deals for high school kids, which is just incredible, right? Like, I guess, are we really going down this path of like, could we see a day where like Miller North has their varsity basketball team? They're all on NIL deals. Like, apart now, we, you know, because there's a lot of transferring in high school now. Like, are we going to see that where, you know, little Billy, who's 15 years old, wants an NIL deal? 
to go to, you know, Papillion? I guess it's crazy to me. We'll see. But I heard that and thought, whoa, oh my gosh. Uh, John Lee on Twitter says, Nick, will Creighton continue to get and retain top talent with NIL and transfer rules? It's a good question. It'll be interesting. Um, you know, I would think so. Just because, you know, Cre- Creighton is kind of the NBA team of Omaha, for back a, lack of a better term. Like at USC, for, for that basketball team, now while Los Angeles is going to have a lot of people in it and there's going to be a lot, like you're competing with the Rams and the Lakers and the Clippers and, the, you know, the beach and all that stuff. Where in Omaha, Creighton's the, the big NBA team there. NBA in air quotes, right? They're the, they're the team. And so that's, I would think, is good. Omaha's got a pretty good amount of money in it, a lot of boosters with some deep pockets that you would think would be able to figure out a way to come together and create a collective to help Creighton's NIL efforts. And then I was thinking about the element of not having football. like, and Because on one hand, when you have a football program, that changes the amount of donors and the amount of money that maybe gets transferred into your program just because of the inherent nature of football and the scale of it. But at the same time, if you think out of it, think of it purely from an NIL, just individual standpoint, maybe it's an advantage to not have football where you're not having a large chunk of NIL money going to 80 other football players. All you got to really focus on for basketball is thir- you got 13 scholarship guys. And within those 13 guys, I mean, maybe maybe only a couple of them are really making real NIL money. Uh, you can find a way to take care of 10 to 13 players way easier than 80 to 100 players. But I'll say this, despite of everything that we're talking about, because you know I feel like I've been heavy on this NIL stuff. I did in my last pod, Take a Palooza. We're already talking about it here. I, we, we talk about all this NIL and transfer portal stuff and all that. And yes, there is no doubt that those, those things play big, big, big roles in the world of recruiting. But let's not get so blinded by those things. And, and let's not forget that still the best recruiting tool is winning. Let's not, let's, let's not lose sight of that. Players, recruits, high school recruits, transfers, like players on some level, they still want to play for a program that wins. And they want to play for a place that cares and has fans who care. And when you look at it from Creighton's standpoint, Creighton is winning. And Creighton is top 10 in attendance. Those things are still really, really important. So, yes, I, I would think Creighton is still going to be able to recruit at a high level, um, but everyone everyone's recruiting strategies across the country right now have to be on point, and they got to be nimble around a lot of these things with NIL and the transfer portal and all that. I mean, again, a lot of people are pivoting away from being like, I'm not recruiting high school kids, I'm recruiting the portal. You know, and then, so there's, uh, how are you doing that? You know, how, how are you allocating your time and resources in recruiting both? And then with NIL, what does that world look like for both? The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors, and I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it, and how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big-time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key. 
for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that. Bottom line, energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable. And Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency. Check them out online, PellaOmaha.com. That's PellaOmaha.com. Scotty tweets at me, says, Nick, I'm ready to hurt again. Give me three reasons to be hopeful for Nebraska basketball. Oh, Scotty, geez, already in late April, you're ready to just you're ready to open yourself up. I like it. I like your style. Let me take a drink of cold brew coffee before I answer this question. Okay, I'm gonna try my best here, Scotty, because I, I listen. I certainly, I think everyone is in. I'll believe it when I see it mode with Nebraska basketball, which is fair and right given the record so far. But okay, if I had to say maybe reason number one, the coaching staff. Um. I thought Doc said, if you haven't seen it, you should go check out. There was a Q&A with Steve Sipple and Doc Sadler. This was about two weeks ago or a week ago or so. And first of all, there were a lot of low-key shots thrown by Doc on his way out here. And I thought one, a couple of Doc's quotes, this one in particular in the Sipple column was interesting, where Steve Sipple basically asked Doc about if there was something about Kansas, because it was right before the Final Four, there was something about Kansas that stood out to him, especially given that Doc Sadler has spent time on Bill Self's staff. Here was Doc Sadler's answer. Doc said, quote, There's something that Bill Self told me one time, and he was one of the first to ever tell me this. Being around a staff that you have fun with, hang out together, and have fun together is really important to being successful. Sip followed up with, why is that important? Doc Sadler said, quote, because there are going to be disagreements. If you can't have disagreements with one another, you can't grow. You can't grow as a staff. You can't grow as a team. Real talk. Real talk is important, in my opinion. And people who take it personally instead of professionally will stunt the growth of a program. Hmm. I mean, I, now, fair or not, I mean, it's, I don't know, I can't help but read the that some of those quotes and see some subtle low key shots being thrown. Now he also in the column talked about there was a bunch of stuff where if you read it with with you know go, looking at it if he's trying to take some subtle shots you could certainly come away with that. But he read talked about some he, you read the column he, he read or he talked about some non negotiable elements of good teams shot selection ball movement transition defense et cetera et cetera. And I guess a lot of those things, to me, read as subtle jabs at Fred Hoiberg, the staff, and the situation at Nebraska over the last year or so. But to the original quotes of what he talked about with chemistry on the staff and having fun together and being able to really communicate with one another, allowing growth to happen, I, listen, I'll just come out and say it because I, I always did sense a little bit of tension. Now, maybe it's because they were just losing, and whenever you're around a team that's losing a lot, when I'd be at shoot-arounds or around the team before the game or whatever, doing stuff with Fox or BTN with Nebraska, like I always sensed a little bit of tension, just a little bit of tension. And I think a lot of it's centered around Matt Abdelmassi. And let me, let me preface it. Matt Abdelmassi has always been nothing but great to me. Nice dude. We have great conversations. He always comes over, shows me love. We have a good talk. Like, so I want to make it abundantly clear, like Matt has always been good to me. But I think sometimes on a staff, when one guy is the main recruiter, so you got to understand, like when, when one guy recruits and signs a dude, that, that assistant coach, that kind of becomes like you're attached to that player. So 
Barrett Rude, and I'm going to football here, Barrett Rude recruits, recruits Nick Henrich. That's Barrett's dude. And so, like, a lot of maybe talking to Nick or whatever, like, that's going to be done through Barrett. Same thing with the basketball staff. And sometimes when one guy recruits everyone, there can be a little bit of, like, a weird dynamic with the relationships with the other assistant coaches where there can be a little bit of, like, hey, man, like, if an assistant coach tries to talk to one of your players, bite him at a prep, there can be a little bit of, like, hey, don't talk to my guy. Don't, talk, don't, don't come at my guy like that. There'll be a little bit of that. I saw it firsthand when – Towards the end of Coach Altman's tenure, there was a guy named Brian Fish on staff. Brian Fish was a little bit like Matt Abdelmassian that Fish did a lot of the recruiting. And the lion's share of the guys that were on the roster were recruited by Fish. And there was always this weird thing with, like, Fish's guys. And it was like, those guys got kind of dealt with differently than everyone else. And that's what's... I wonder if there was a little bit of that going on with Abdelmassian. And I just always sensed a little bit of tension around that. So to circle back, I think hitting reset with the staff and bringing in Adam Howard, who is an assistant coach for, that Hoiberg hired from South Alabama, might allow for the staff to have better chemistry, which should impact the players. And then the other thing with Adam Howard is he's a defensive guy. He's being brought in to kind of head up the defense, which is something I've talked about, that Fred Hoiberg needs someone hands-on that is focused and their expertise lies on the defensive end of the floor. That's Howard. So that'd be maybe reason number one. Reason number two it's kind of broad, but listen, the more Fred Hoiberg goes through the Big Ten Conference, the better understanding he'll have on the league and what to do and what not to do. Because if you, I think in a lot of ways, Fred Hoiberg walked into the, to, to the Big Ten basketball-wise a lot like Scott Frost did to the Big Ten football-wise, where, the, hey man, the Big Ten's going to have to adjust to us. Big Ten's going to have to get ready for our offense, for what we do. Like, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, Scott Frost was, you know, he was up-tempo, light the scoreboard up. Well, that's not really happened since he've gotten to the Big Ten. Fred Hoiberg, up-tempo, light the scoreboard up. Well, that hasn't really happened since he's been in the Big Ten. Like, there are similarities there. And if you look at it from their perspectives, there is no reason that Scott Frost, had, he had no reason to, to walk into Lincoln and not be drenched in confidence in thinking like, man, my offense kicks people's ass. I don't care who it is, where it is. I'm going to light this conference on fire. He had every right to feel like that. Same thing with Fred Hoiberg. Listen, man, I was just with the Chicago Bulls. I was in the playoffs. You think I'm worried about Northwestern? Just give me a break, man. I was with Iowa State. We went to the Sweet 16 multiple times, lit the offensive world on fire. You think I'm worried about North... Purdue and all this stuff. Well, they they've kind of they've they've been humbled a little bit, both guys. And while I'm not saying that Fred Hoiberg needs to scrap his style, I think there are ways you can infuse some things with his style that suit survival in the Big Ten. And I'd have to imagine that that Fred Hoiberg's been humbled pretty good and learned. I mean, humbling's just a way of another word of of saying learning. That you would think he's probably found and some tweaks that I think will help on the defensive side of things, toughness, rebounding, all those sorts of things. So hopefully that happens. And then reason number three, I'm going to say Sam Griesel, the North Dakota State transfer, Lincoln kid, went to Lincoln East. I think he's going to infuse some pride in playing for Nebraska, which is something this program really, really needs. Someone that when they put that jersey on and they see Nebraska cut across their chest, like it, it means something to them. And it just, whether you like it or not, when you're from a place and you rep it, like it, it, it hits different. So I, I think he'll be someone that the fan base can connect with as well and rally around. 
Plus, he's a, he's a good player. He's a veteran, experienced player. 6'6", big guard. Last year, he averaged 14 points a game, six rebounds, three assists, shot 48% from the floor. He doesn't take a lot of threes, but he's capable. He's like a mid-30s percent from three guys. So he'll help as well. So there you go. Those, those would be a couple of reasons. Jimmy Motes, shouts out to former Blue Jay, head coach at Norris, Jimmy Motes. Uh, Jimmy always good for this. Jimmy says, Nick, Simpsons question. Hans Moleman, Troy McClure, or comic book guy? Who you got? Man, that's good. I mean, comic book guy, you know, just a condescending guy that's worst episode ever. Of course, you may not. That is episode 14 of Radioactive Man. Like, you, you got to love his character, but I'm going to go Troy McClure. If people want to go dabble into it, a fish named Selma in uh, in The Simpsons early on, maybe like season six or seven. It's one of my favorite episodes in The Simpsons. It's where Troy McClure marries Marge's sister, Selma, to try to reboot his acting career. Just an incredible episode. But Troy McClure is just the perfect... He, he's the perfect exaggeration of like a Hollywood airhead hunk who will just do anything to be on camera. And that's Troy McClure. So I'm going to go Troy McClure. Uh, Ride the Wave on Twitter says, Nick, do I get new tires on my truck now or wait until the fall? All right, Ride the Wave. I don't know who you think you're talking to, but you won't find someone less equipped to answer that question than me. Okay? I don't know. I don't even know how to, I don't know how to change a tire. I got nothing for you, bro. Absolutely nothing. Sorry, Ride the Wave. Maybe just change it now. There you go. Okay. Uh, Jeff on Twitter says, Nick, what's your go-to chocolate milk? We looking at Highland, Trader Joe's, or something else? I'm not gonna lie to you, Jeff. We're, we are really a chocolate milk family. I drink almond milk. That's my style. Oh boy, I might have lost some listeners with that one. Uh, I'm an almond almond milk guy. I guess I'll say this: when I hear chocolate milk, the first thing I think of is YooHoo. Is YooHoo still a thing? Is you they still do YooHoo chocolate milk? I just love that name, YooHoo. So yeah, I would go with YooHoo. Okay, let's go to some uh, email questions. Those are some Twitter. Thomas uh, in the email says, hi, Nick. So I have a two-part question for you. What do you make of the high, way-too-early rankings for the Creighton Blue Jays next year? And in order to reach that level, who specifically should they bring in? I know people have said a backup big, and they brought in Farabello already, but who would you like to see? Okay, so I, I hit on this a little bit in my last pod, but I'll expand a little deeper for, for Thomas here. So, yeah, the, Farabello is the TCU transfer. He's about a 6'3", 6'4", foreign kid. He's a shooter. He's I think Greg McDermott was clearly thinking fit for for Farabello. He's a, he's a good shooter. He's smart. He plays hard. He can kind of fill into that, hopefully, kind of Alex O'Connell role, running him off screens and then defensively chasing guys around. Um, in terms of other players they should bring in, well, first of all, I think you know Greg McDermott. They need to be careful about who they bring in, in, in terms of all it takes is you know a, a basketball locker room small, and all it takes is the bringing in one wrong guy, and it can f everything up. So you got to be careful about bringing in someone that doesn't fit. You got a good locker room with a bunch of good dudes in there. The chemistry is on point. You don't want to mess with that. Now, the the name Baylor Shireman has is someone that I know Creighton is on, and. I talked about this in my last my last pod, but Baylor Shireman is a stud. Six, he's from South Dakota State, and he's a he's from Aurora, Nebraska. So he's a local kid, six six, elite passer, elite feel, unbelievable flair for the game. I mean, this guy would be if he would if he would come to Creighton, it would be an, a, funnest guy to watch on the team. 
He led South Dakota State to a Summit League title, 30-5 and on the year, 18-0 and in the Summit League. He averaged 18-8-4 assists per game. He shot His shooting splits were 50-46-80. and I mean, like, dude is a really good player. And even though Creighton's kind of loaded on the wing and in the backcourt, like, he's too good of a player to not take. You take him and you figure it out. And I think Creighton's got a shot with him because of connections with South Dakota State's head coach is an old GA for McDermott. Him and, this, and Eric Henderson are tight. Uh, so I think there's a real shot, especially you can play the coming home card for Baylor Shireman. So I think he's one guy I would throw out there. Um, I think Creighton, to, to circle back to what Thomas said, Creighton absolutely does need to get a backup five with size. They have to have someone behind Kalkbrenner with size. Now, I know Kalkbrenner did an excellent job last year at playing defense without fouling, but you need to have two dudes with size to survive you know, a, a 30-40 game grinder schedule. So that would be a need. And maybe the the other thing I think Creighton needs, oddly enough, and maybe this guy is Shireman, but Creighton kind of needs to go find a scorer, in my opinion. Now, maybe they don't if the staff feels like Kaluma and Trey Alexander are going to continue on this like upward improvement trajectory plane that they're on. But if you think about last year's team, the the only two consistent scorers all year were Hawkins and Alex Alex O'Connell. Those were the the two guys who were in terms of game to game steady start first game to the last game that consistently scored were those two dudes. You lose both those guys. So you kind of need you kind of need a score. So that would be that would be how I'd answer it. As far as the early top 10 rankings, listen, it's fair and warranted. This is a team that returns almost everyone. They went to the NCAA tournament. They I, you could argue in the NCAA tournament, Creighton played Kansas as tough or tougher than anybody in the tournament. And they had the ball down one with a minute left. Almost beat KU. They went to the Big East tournament finals and gave Final Four Villanova all they could handle. So it's 100% warranted to be in the conversation of a preseason top 10-ish team. The one thing that'll be interesting to see is how this team handles expectations. Because I always talk about this where it's, it's one thing to do something when nobody expects you to do it. It's totally different when... Everyone expects you to do it. Like when you have expectations, it's a different world. And when you have expectations, just winning isn't enough sometimes. It's how you win that matters as well. Like if Creighton mucks around and barely beats Pine Bluff and Kennesaw State and SIU Edwardsville like they did last year, well, last year everyone said, hey, look at this. They're finding a way to win. Be patient with them. Well, I mean, if they do that next year, Everybody's going to be like, man, the Creighton's going to fall maybe out of the rankings or they're definitely going to drop and people are going to go, what's wrong with Creighton? All because of expectations. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle that. Last Creighton thought, I just can't express enough. I I, I feel like the dude that's going to be a freaking monster next year is Ryan Kalkbrenner. I feel like this dude, he was really... He really came on in the second half of the season, and I just feel like he's scratching the surface, reigning Big East Defensive Player of the Year. His offensive game is improving. He's still getting stronger. Like, man, I just feel like that guy's poised for, like, a huge, huge junior year. Huge. Steve uh, in the email says, Nick, what do you think of all the transfer portal numbers in college basketball? I'm an Iowa State fan, and I'm also curious what your take is on Tyrese Hunter transferring. So, yeah, I was surprised with Tyrese Hunter transferring. He was a – people that don't know, he's a starting point guard for Iowa State. He's a freshman, and Iowa State went to the Sweet 16. He was a guy that averaged double figures. He had the ball in his hands the whole game. And, I mean, he, he was he was thriving. 
And I had Iowa State and Creighton on TV this year, so I remember doing a Zoom with T.J. Otzelberger and talking to T.J. Otzelberger, the head coach of Iowa State, and and I remember asked, talking about Hunter, and it appeared like he and Hunter had a great relationship. So I was surprised to see that happen. But for me, like, to to the question of, like, w- with all the transfers, what do I think of it? Um, I'll say this. Now, just just like anything in life, like, sometimes we always come at things based on our own experiences. Like, how, so, how an event lands with us is oftentimes going to get filtered through the lens of our own experience in life. But sometimes, like, sometimes you have to remember that. Because, I like, whenever I see these things, I always have to go, well, not everybody's situation is like yours. Because, obviously, I was a player that transferred in college. I went from Kansas to Creighton. And, listen, the only reason I transferred is because I wanted to play. Like, I was sitting, I was riding the bench at Kansas, and I wanted to start and be a major player, so I left. So, for me, things always get filtered through that lens. I am always personally a little puzzled when these players have a great situation basketball-wise and they still transfer. That's always interesting to me. I mean, you think about Tyrese Hunter, and we're just I'm using him as an example because that's what the emailer had. Tyrese Hunter had basically what every player wants. He was in a major conference at Iowa State. He was a starter. He had the ball in his hands almost the entire game. He could you know, he took a ton of shots. He could attack and be aggressive all as a freshman. So to me, he's when I look at Hunter, it's like, okay, you got a great situation that every player is searching for. And they were winning. They went to the Sweet 16. And to leave is just, it's, an, it's interesting to me. Because again, the sole reason that I left was because I wanted to try to find a situation like Tyrese Hunter had. So it's always weird when I see the people that are in a great spot leave. And you see that a decent amount where players are in a good basketball situation and they seemingly have everything you could possibly want and they still leave. That's always interesting to me. But certainly I understand there is far more to it than just what's happening on the floor, right? May not be happy at the school, may not like the coach, may not like the the teammates, whatever. Or they may just feel like moving to a different school is best for their future. I get all of that. But for me, it's just always interesting to me when I see players who who kind of have it all, basketball-wise, and they still leave. That's always interesting to me. John emails in. Says, Nick, have you seen Gus Johnson calling NBA playoff games? Will Fox slash BTN let you cross over to do NCAA tournament games for CBS or Turner? Well, John, can I have you give CBS and Turner a call, try and pitch that for me? Yeah, I mean, I would... I would love that. Um, of course, I have seen – yeah, Gus Johnson's been calling some playoff games. Jim Jackson, obviously, obviously calls uh, swimming game, NBA games for Turner. So there is some crossover network-wise with, with on-air people at times. It usually depends on how the contract stuff is written on the front end with exclusivity or not. Like, you look at a guy like Jay Billis. Jay Billis, I'm sure, has a clause in his contract where he is exclusive to ESPN. Where you look at a guy like Bill Raftery, Bill Raftery isn't. He's on Fox. He's on CBS. Like, he's not exclusive to one of those places. But yes, man, I would love to do the tournament. It's a dream of mine. It's a pinned tweet on my Twitter page where I simply write, I will call an NCAA tournament game on TV one day. Hopefully that happens. I would I would love to for that to be the case. Greg emails in, says, Nick, if Joe Gans had one more, one more year of eligibility and he is the starting quarterback in 2009, how do you think that season plays out for Nebraska? 
I personally think we beat Virginia Tech, we beat Iowa State, and we beat Texas in the Big 12 title game. Maybe we lose to Texas Tech. We have one bad day. I think we end up 13-1 and and finish in the top four in the country. My question is, what do you think would have happened? Okay, I well, if Joe Gans is a quarterback in 2009... I think Nebraska definitely goes at least 13-1. and one. I mean, j- listen, Greg, you might be being generous by giving them one bad day and a loss. Like, that offense, the 2009 offense in particular, the quarterback situation was, sh- was so shaky that it impacted everything. I mean, by the end of the year, I mean, remember the, the Iowa State game that, that they lost at home? They had, what, eight turnovers? They had eight. And by the end of the year, that offense was just in – they were in just don't screw it up and give the defense a chance to win the game mode. Like, you just were like, just go three and out and punt it. Don't turn it over. Give the defense a chance. But you know what's weird? I remember doing this. So, Bo and I in our, our Husker Classic recaps, we did, uh, we did the 2009 Big 12 title game. And one of the things that's weird about that, uh, about that 2009 offense was, like, they had decent skill guys. They had Mike McNeil and Niles Paul. They had Roy Hallou at running back. Like They had like decent players at the skill spots. But still, that offense just woo, struggled. Obviously, that has a lot to do with the quarterback. So naturally, if you put Gans on that team, I think that team's a national title contender. And that defense was crazy. Indomitian Sioux's 2009 season was one of the best individual seasons any defensive players ever had in the history of college football. I think the more interesting what if, as it pertains to this question, is what happens with Bo Pelini in this hypothetical? Because I still contend, despite all of Bo's flaws, I still think if Bo Pelini could have won one of those three conference title games that he he was in, everything could have been different. The 2009, 2010, and 2012 conference championship games. If he wins one of those games, I think the angst with the fans dissipates which then doesn't bring out that that prickly bow all the time. So I think the more interesting element of all this is if Gans is the quarterback in 2009, what happens with Bo Pelini and his long-term prospects at Nebraska? Listen, there's a world where that dude could still be the head coach here in Lincoln, which is wild to think about. John emails in, says, Hi, Nick. Dumb question, or maybe something helpful for someone new to Nebraska or someone who's moved here within the last 20 years. If Nebraska always sells out games, why are they concerned with updates to Memorial Stadium or the fan experience? It hasn't stopped people from coming or buying tickets since the early 60s. That's from John. Well, first of all, John, I think for anybody, you need to understand that the sellout streak, while legit, it's kind of like there's an asterisk by it. Like, Technically, the sellout streak is real because the tickets are bought. But in terms of a sellout of butts in the seats, Memorial Stadium full every game since 1962, that's just not true. There, are, there have been pockets of empty seats for uh, for a while now. So I think the the reason they're trying to make updates is, first of all, they're trying to always keep that sellout streak alive. But I do think there's a lot of things at play here with John's question. I mean, I could go I, – I could talk about this for 30 – 40 minutes here, but one of the things, I'll try to be concise, going to the game, when you think about buying a ticket and going to the game, going to the game used to have no competition because the game was the everything, but now you got to compete with home. You got to compete, the game day experience has to compete with the home couch experience. 
And that's tough, man. You got your huge flat screen TV that's gorgeous. Every game you want is on TV. Got your food, got your drinks, got the bathroom two steps away. It's a tough battle. You're in that uncomfortable, tiny bench seat, hard wood, like, and you, to go to the bathroom, it takes forever to get a drink. It's expensive. It takes a long time. And you can only watch that game. Plus, the length of these college football games is just fucking ridiculous anymore. But that's a tough battle. And because of that TV explosion and every single game being on TV, that inherently changes the desire to go to the games now. Think about it. As a fan, 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, oftentimes the only way to see your team play was you had to go to the game. There's only time, there's only way you, you want to watch Johnny Rogers play? Guess what? You either got to go to the game or you're not going to be able to see it. More often than not. Now, every game is on TV. And not only every game of the team you're a fan of is on TV, but every game across the country is on TV. That changes everything. So as a university, you got to constantly be keeping that in mind and improving and altering and finding ways to make the game day stadium experience as good as possible because now just going to the game, like now going to the game almost can't be just that. It can't just be like, well, the reason you're, you're coming to the game because there's the game. Well, it's got to be more than that because I can go, I can be at home and watch the game. So there's a bunch, there's a bunch of stuff at play here. So I totally get why they're always trying to improve and, and all that stuff. The other thing is obviously ticket sales are a big revenue generator and an impact on a program big time. But you, you have to find ways to make the game stadium experience as good as possible on a variety of levels. Jeff emails in and says, hey, Nick. You mentioned once on a podcast about your only interaction with Lou Perkins, uh, who he was the Kansas AD at the time, by the way, about Lou with Lou Perkins about you making some KU fans really happy with a late bucket you made. Curious how often Bill Self and other coaches know the spread and coach to it. Also, your last pod with Willie was one of my favorites. Good life lessons. That's from Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Um, so, for people people that don't know, it was my sophomore year. Lou Perkins was the athletic director at Kansas. I got in at the end of I thought it was a Colorado game. Got in, first possession, got a kick out, corner three right in front of the Kansas bench. I just, I drill it, crowd goes crazy, there's about a minute left, and I was like, cool, I made a shot. And I remember walking in, in off the floor and heading towards the locker room, and Lou Perkins, the AD, shook my hand and said, you just made a lot of Kansas fans pretty happy with that shot. And I remember at the time thinking, like, yeah, I made the shot. I think they're excited to see me make the shot. But then I was like, oh, shit, he's talking about, the, I, that must have covered the spread for KU. I had no idea. And the one thing I'll say, that's le- that was legit the only time I can remember any spread talk. I don't remember any of that stuff. Now, you got to understand, I mean, not to date myself, I mean, that was almost 20 years ago. Like, sports gambling was a lot more taboo 20 years ago. I mean, sports gambling was like pfft, way, 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 like it was not widely accepted like it is now. And then without you know Twitter and internet gambling sites, it was also hard to just know what the spread of a game was when you played in it. I think coaches probably are lying to you if they say they don't know the spread more often than not in the games they're playing. But now are coaching to the spread, I highly doubt anyone does that. Now, I can't say with certainty. I bet there are some coaches that are aware of it, but are they actively like 
Ah, let's try and score a touchdown to cover the spread. I don't know about that. I don't know about that. I can't confirm or deny that. Andrew says, this is the last question, by the way. Says, hey, Nick, huge Creighton fan and love the pod. Never miss an episode. My friends and I love to come up with Creighton scenarios slash hypotheticals. And our recent one was, who is one one Creighton player you'd love to see share the floor with Doug McDermott? Mine was Zegarowski or Hawkins. You either get 60 to 70 points in an assist, uh, an assist night or a clinic on fundamentals with some sneaky hops. Keep doing your thing, Andrew. Well, okay, one player I'd want to see with Doug McDermott. Selfishly, I want to say Nick Baugh. I want to say me. Can I, be, can I be that one player? I would have certainly loved to play with Doug. That would have been a good time. Certainly would have gotten a lot of open shots playing with old Dougie, getting double teams and all that stuff. I would have gotten my assist game up too. But in all seriousness, I agree with what Andrew said. First guy that jumped out to me was Marcus Zagorowski. Um, ball screen with those two would be lethal. Another guy, Maurice Watson, elite passer, incredible in ball screens with Doug. Imagine those two guys in, in a pick and roll, pick and pop. And then I, I, part of me has a hard time not saying Kyle Korver. And I know you go, Kyle Korver. I get it. Like they're similar skill sets, both about six, seven shooters, all that stuff. But just really close your eyes and imagine Kyle Korver and Doug McDermott on the court at the same time playing for Creighton. Because the one thing about Kyle, Kyle had elite basketball feel and passing as well. So like Doug, with the way he would cut and move, Kyle would have found him. And then, I mean, you're talking about two of the most prolific shooters ever on the floor at the same time. That would have been fun to watch as well. You'd have to get your popcorn ready for that one. All right, so we'll wrap it up there. Good stuff. God, I, I need to, I always say that. I feel like I say this at the end of every mailbag. I need to do that more often. Really appreciate everybody, their suggestions, their emails, all that stuff, their questions. Uh, sorry if I didn't get to any of them. Uh, we'll try to do this again. Maybe I need to do the one with, uh, with a wine pod with Bo Robert Rue. But I appreciate everybody uh, participating. You can email me, nick at nickbot.com. We'll catch you next time on the Nick Bot Podcast. A Huda Media Production.